Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Built Up Logically by Howard Schoenfeld, also known as The Universal Panacea by Howard Schoenfeld. Um, there might be a few other authors of this story, but uh, the person, the human, that probably wrote this story is named Howard Schoenfeld. <laughs> I think uh, I think people who are kind enough to listen to us may want to know why you said that mm. about the human. Well, um, because the, in one version of this story, uh, Howard Schoenfeld is a character actually named in the story. And um, all of the story is about the writing of a story, um, which has uh, one guy creating a universe out of uh, words on a page. So uh, when you put yourself in the story, which many authors do, um, you open yourself up to a lot of uh, big question marks. And I think uh, this story has many big question marks and many exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think so. Uh, the story, you want to give us a, an overview of what happens in the story? Uh, okay, it's, it's um, a bit confusing. There's two guys, they're walking down the street, and one says, here, have a cigar. Um, the other one takes the cigar, and then um, they enjoy their cigars. And then one of them s starts inventing rabbits. Well, a rabbit. He invents the concept of a rabbit uh, using his hands. He gets the feel for the creature's fur, and he builds it, up, builds it up logically from the feel. So this is from the version of the story called Built Up Logically. Mm-hmm. And then they proceed down the street, uh, inventing things as they go or appreciating things as they go. They go to a nightclub where they meet um, a few characters who are um, familiar. Some of them are wooden. <laughs> um, they time travel 5,000 years into the future. Uh, well, where, do they? Well, they do, but it, it has no effect on anything because the whole universe time traveled 5,000 years into the future. Um, although it does affect the story. <laughs> kind of. Um, and then what happens next? Um, geez, the, they go to a party uh, where one of them uh, meets another version of himself and uh, takes control of the story, um, kills the other character, but then the other character takes back control of the story and kills the other character and uh, finishes off the story with uh, two final words. Jesse, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I don't think the uh, that summary is actually accurate. It's it's not accurate. Yeah. Because he doesn't meet another version of himself at the party. Uh, I think the Baron's another version of himself. Um, uh, he doesn't he doesn't do much in the in the party. But he's he's lying there comatose on the floor. Until he wakes up, picks up a gun, and shoots himself. Well, maybe this confusing uh, summary is is the best one can do with a story I, I, like I, this. I don't know how to explain this the story other than it's it's bonkers. 
it's bonkers, but it, it has bonkers. a logic. Okay, so let me let me try an alternate, which will go together sure. with yours. And okay, um, mm -hmm. so the story opens with a guy walking down the street with another guy. The guy, who, the first guy, is the first person narrator. He's saying, "We're going." I was going down the street, and Frank used his hands to conjure something out of air. He invents the rabbit. He starts out with its fur, and then it's the only possible thing that can come out of fur that feels that is the rabbit. He invents it by building it up logically. This notion that you can build up logically from something um, as if you didn't have to worry about where the thing came from to begin with, that is the fur, uh, that's never actually explored, nor is it explored whether or not there is such a thing as an actual logic that would mean that you'd have to wind up with rabbits if you started out with uh, that kind of fur. But, you know, maybe this is a dream or maybe it is just a philosophical game or maybe it is uh, a drug experience of some sort, because in the original version, um, they don't share a cigar. They share uh, marijuana. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a few differences in the texts so that wherever marijuana was mentioned before, it becomes cigars um, in the version that we're talking about, which is the better known version. In fact, it's been widely widely read. So they decide to go to uh, up to 52nd Street to a club called the Three Sevens. And at the club, the Three Sevens, uh, our speaker uh, sees a good looking, sees a guy talking to a woman at the bar um, and he, he kicks her uh, and she falls down thump. Um, she's wooden. Um, and she really is wooden and she's made out of wood. Um, they have a little exchange about what it means to have to be reading something to such a wooden character. It turns out that the thing that this fellow who kicked the wooden character is reading is the story that we are reading. We begin mm -hmm. with the very same words. So we have one level of reality inside another level of reality, putting aside for the moment the question of whether or not fictional reality is itself wholly different from real reality uh, or shared reality or historical reality or whatever you want to call it. Then our guy goes in, is, is uh, signaled into the office of the manager and there he finds a girl straight out of uh, a uh, hard-boiled detective story, slinky dress and so on. She's the one who wants him to write an article about the time machine that her father has invented and she would do anything to have him write the article. Uh, well, he <laughs> thinks that he would like to do that, but what winds up happening is that they go off for 5,000 years um, and nothing has changed. <laughs> but it turns out that the guy he was with, the, the rabbit inventor, um, has been left on stage for 5,000 years, unable to play the musical instrument that that character had invented for himself without realizing he'd have to be able to learn how to play it. So he's really angry. Uh, they go off to a party. And at that party, um, the character seizes control of the story and gets the host to think that um, the prior narrator is um, breaking in and shoots and kills him. However, when much earlier, 
our narrator had looked at the fellow at the bar who kicked the wooden character and was reading a text which he himself had written. It turns out that that character in the bar in a gray overcoat was himself. So the version of himself that was killed at the party isn't the only version of himself in the story. And the version of himself that is still alive in the story then starts writing again, using the typewriter in the office of the manager's daughter. And in that, he writes a scene in which the guy who had usurped the story gets killed. And then our guy, now in control of the story again, finishes the story and we see what he is typing. And he adds the last two words, the end. Right. Is that adequately confusing? <laughs> it's very I, I I think everybody just needs to read this story to appreciate how amazingly illogical and yet built up logically it is. Yes, uh, that's it. The built up logically. So here's what what I would like to point out. Um, we need the word. I mean, logic is a lovely word and it's uh, it gets tacked on to other things like um, epistemologically and um, ontologically. And in fact, those are two words that I think are relevant here. Epistemology is the branch of metaphysics that has to do with ways of knowing. And there are different ways of knowing. I mean, I can know by feeling things. I can know by doing mathematics. I can know by uh, trusting in someone else's report. Those are different ways of knowing. I can know things that are organized in some theoretical way. Science presumably gets known that way. I can know things as individual data, you know, like, uh, oh, I saw this uh, interesting site on the street the other day, and it doesn't fit in with anything else except, you know, I saw it on the street that day. Um, there are different ways of knowing. That's epistemology, and things can have be epistemologically different. Ontology is the branch of metaphysics that has to do with the nature of being. So, you know, there are different ways to be. For example, um, if you be a cow... <laughs> then then you have flesh. But if you be a dead cow, you <laughs> have meat. And in fact, we don't think of a steak and a cow as existing in the same kind of way. And they have different moral aspects to them and so on. So there are different ways of being, ontological differences. One of the things that is always a potential playground for an author is that the world inside a fiction masquerades as being a world outside fiction. Mm -hmm. But the world inside fiction is ontologically different from the world outside fiction. And sometimes what happens is that um, the fiction calls attention to its own nature as fiction. And this is what is often called self-reflexivity. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to take a minute to, to talk about this because it's really crucial ontologically. And hence, this story is built up logically, that is to say, ontologically and epistemologically by the games it plays with ontology. So if I can, I want to go back to a famous example of this self-reflexivity. Here we have this is from Chapter 5 in H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. The time traveler is back from 802.701 AD and is 
telling what he saw to the people at his dinner table back in 1895. And here I must admit that I learned very little of drains and bells and modes of conveyance and the like conveniences during my time in this real future. In some of these visions of utopias and coming times, which I have read, there is a vast amount of detail about building and social arrangements and so forth. But while such details are easy enough to obtain when the whole world is contained in one's imagination, they are altogether inaccessible to a real traveler amid such realities as I found there. Conceive the tale of London, which a Negro fresh from Central Africa would take back to his tribe, what would he know of railway companies, of social movements, of telephone and telegraph wires, of the parcels delivery service, and postal orders and the like? Yet we, at least, should be willing enough to explain these things to him. And even of what he knew, how much could he make his untraveled friend either apprehend or believe? Then think how narrow the gap between a Negro and a white man of our own times and how wide the interval between myself and these of the golden age. I was sensible of how much which was unseen and which contributed to my comfort, but save for a general impression of automatic organization, I fear I can convey very little of the difference to your mind. Now, clearly in this passage, what Wells's time traveler is doing is saying to his dinner companions, if you were reading a fiction, then you would get all this detail. But you're not reading a fiction. You're getting a report from me. So I can't give you the detail. In other words, this act, this paragraph is saying to the reader, hey, look, this really is fiction. You can't make believe it's not fiction because the guy is actually this is funny because the guy is in a fiction talking about this thing that presumably isn't fiction. Or to put it another way, and I tried to stress the word real here, whenever you have self-reflexivity, an example of art calling attention to its own existence, means of existence, its ontology as art, whatever else it's doing, it's making a reality claim for the work of art. And I think that's a general rule. I've been looking at it for, for years, and it seems to me, I mean, examples of it, and it seems to me it holds. And that, I think, is one of the great things about this story built up logically, because again and again and again, when we have the author encountering a character who is himself the author, who's reading a manuscript, which itself is the manuscript of the story that we are reading, etc., everything that's going on here is a reality claim. There's one kind of reality after another. And in fact, our main character, when he seizes control back from the character who had gotten away from him and has him killed, he's happy. He's got the manager's daughter. He's ended the story successfully with the words, the end. In other words, there is a reality that we're supposed to accept here, except, of course, the way the language works. This can't possibly be real. So <laughs> this thing, which is built up logically, it's not just the rabbit, which is built up logically. Rabbits, by the way, being wonderful things that magicians presumably uh, extract from hats. Right. It's not just the rabbit that's built up logically or the plot that's built up logically. The story called built up logically is built up logically, except 
it's the branch of logic that studies paradoxes. And it's the particular kind of paradox that comes out of the ontological conflicts that you get with self-reflexivity. And it seems to me that if I were trying to teach the concept of ontology and the differences between art and reality, this story would be a perfect example. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's so rare you get it, uh, something so uniquely what it is in such a, you know, concise and <laughs> enjoyable um, package. And what I like about the title is, yeah, it, it refers to itself. Um, the ending <laughs> is anticipated by the reader. It's there on the page. But <laughs> even the original story title, The Universal Panacea, um, which I think is also brilliant, does the same job. And that's the first opening, that's the first line of the story. The Universal Panacea, Frank said, lighting a cigar. Have one. Right. <laughs> Have one what? <laughs> How about a story? <laughs> And that's exactly what, uh, when you have a collection of uh, letters in an alphabet and you can form them into sentences, you have created the universal panacea. That is, you can build up whole universes with just 26 or 27 letters and uh, periods and commas and quotation marks, uh, a little bit of paper and a typewriter. Exactly. And, and, the, and they become a time machine. Indeed. Not just Wells's time machine, but in fact, our narrator's time machine, the one that, or I should say, the, the, the one by the manager that moves everything 5,000 years, and you can't tell. And who is the manager, do we think? <laughs> he's, one of the, he's one of the characters who's only there to let us know that somebody is managing this story. <laughs> All right. You know? You're right. You know, this story in, in many ways uh, goes in and out of our shared reality. For instance, going back to that, that uh, wooden character, here's the passage from the story. Um, uh, who, say, who are you? Uh, our character asks the guy in the gray overcoat who's reading. For an answer, he doubled up his fist and socked the blonde sitting next to him, that is at the bar. She thudded and teetered on the bar stool before falling off. She hit the floor with a resounding thump. Wood, he said, looking down at her. Solid wood. I tapped the girl's back with the toe of my shoe. There was no doubt about it. She was wooden to the core. How would you like to have to sit in a nightclub and to read a piece of read to a piece of wood? He asked disgustedly. I wouldn't, I admitted. <laughs> All your characters are wooden, he said. So the connection between the homophony between W-O-O-D and W-O-U-L-D is crucial in this little passage one form of wood or wood or wooden or wooden comes up about eight times in six lines. So <laughs> we're supposed to notice this is English. This is something that existed before the story and from outside of it. In addition to that, 
there are references in the story. And I, you know, I don't think you and I need to take a lot of time. Uh, anyone who reads the story can have the fun of catching them. But I, I will men- mention two. One is they're they're down in lower Manhattan and uh, our narrator uh, says to to Frank, the guy he for a while, most of the story controls, um, let's go let's go up to the two to the three sevens, which is the club where later in the story uh, they will see the man in the gray coat and the manager's daughter. Um, the three sevens is treated as if it were a jazz club. It's a place where you can drink. Um, and maybe there are three sevens on stage whom Frank joins with the instrument that he doesn't know how to play for 5,000 years. But we're told that the three sevens, this place, is on 52nd Street. Well, in fact, three times seven is 21. And at 21 West 52nd Street in New York, there was a famous club, formerly a speakeasy, called the 21 Club. So (laughs) this whole story is somehow richer if we recognize that it's based on what we would think of as a real New York. In fact, when they go to the party, the fellow who owns the the apartment they visit also owns a collection of art. And we're told that on the wall is a picture by Mondrian. Now, I've got to tell you, on 53rd Street in New York at the Museum of Modern Art, They have Mondrian paintings on exhibit just one block away. And perhaps the most famous of them all is Pete Mondrian's uh, painting called Broadway Boogie Woogie. Mm In other words, it's it's jazz. And that's where they started out with jazz. And our poor character, Frank, is unable to play jazz at the three sevens. This is a New York story, right, about trying to create some sense of reality out of who knows what. Uh, one more point, and if someone were to read, in, so lots of people skip editorial introductions, but here in this 1950 publication in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, there is the strangest, I think, the strangest editorial introduction I've seen for that magazine. It says, This joyous record of a world where life goes off at a tangent was first printed in a little magazine called Retort. Our careful study of this story um, has discovered only one factor that has not been explained by Howard Schoenfeld within the framework of his own logic. While everything else is carefully arranged within his mad pattern, he neglects to define for us the profession of birdsmith. It is far too easy and sane to assume that a birdsmith is one who devotes his energies to forging metal replicas of various birds. Such a reasonable assumption has no place in Mr. Schoenfeld's mad universe. It will be obvious to the reader that the profession of birdsmith must be an arcane calling, having nothing to do with either birds or smithies. And if you complain that this discussion of birdsmithing hasn't much relation to the following story, the story has little to do with the ordered life you live. Now, that's quite a challenge to the reader. You know, mm-hmm. um, those of us who've read the story, you and I certainly uh, know that twice we get 
the calling card of the narrator, the one who is writing the story that the man in the gray overcoat reads. And the guy's calling card, presumably giving his name, it says Hilbert Hooper Aspasia. And under it, on the left, in little letters, it says Birdsmith. And on the right, in little letters, it says Author. So of all of the crazy things in this, this story, the editors have picked up Birdsmith. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out, of course, not of course, that the word bird actually is used in this story. Mm-hmm. And it's in this sentence. Gratitude, Aspasia says nastily, that's to Frank. What They're having an argument after uh, Frank says, you know, you left me here for 5,000 years. It was humiliating. What do you expect of me? Gratitude, Aspasia said nastily, and a little loyalty. Gratitude, my eye. You're the bird who made me stand in front of a nightclub audience for 5,000 years with a trumpet I couldn't play. Most humiliating experience of my life. You're the bird. Mm-hmm. So this is jazz language. Broadway boogie woogie. The word bird. Hey, he's an odd bird, isn't he? No, no. He's the rare bird. The uh, uh, rara avis. Right. Um, phrase that goes all the way back to Latin. Um, bird just means character. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, a birdsmith, presumably, is someone who makes characters or Birdsmith on the left of the calling card is identical to author on the right of the calling card. Wilbur mm-hmm. Hooper Aspasia is a birdsmith. Now, assuming that we have figured out what that means, let's go back to that editorial introduction. And it ends with, if you complain that this discussion, meaning in the editorial introduction, of birdsmithing hasn't much relation to the following story, the story has little to do with the ordered world, the ordered life you live. <laughs> so what the what the editor is saying here, and I can't help but wonder if it wasn't Schoenfeld who wrote it for him. The <laughs> editor is saying, if you don't realize it's important to know what a birdsmith is, then you don't understand why this story matters in your ordered life. In other words, your ordered life is being commented upon by built up logically. (laughs) So what kind of comment, if you think that makes sense, Jesse, what kind of comment do you think the story is making about the reader's ordered life? Well, I, I, I keep thinking of the context of, of where this was originally published. Um, this is, it was originally published in a magazine called the retort or retort. Um, and it it was a magazine uh, subtitled An Anarchist Quarterly of Social Philosophy and the Arts. It didn't normally have fiction in it. It had a lot of uh, poetry. It had articles uh, about, you know, how to resist uh, uh, war and <laughs> how to resist um, pr- prison and all the things that, you know, anarchists would go against. And uh, thinking about how every character in this story is completely scripted and thinking about how we think of ourselves as free, but are programmed by our genes and by our upbringing and many other things. I think that this does, this story does have a lot of bearing on our own lives. And yet, um, I still think we're free. So there's something going on there. I, I also wanted to point out that, um, 
the time machine that uh, that is you know seemingly unimportantly in this story gains added resonance um, as the years go by. Um, maybe five thousand years from now, the story will still be read. But uh, one thing that may be lost in that period of time is that the machine is is described as having a mass of complicated wiring, several rheostrats, and two retorts containing <laughs> silver. Um, the first retort being the retort where you find the story. The second being what? <laughs> you finish reading the story. Or, right. no, come on. Right? Um, so I can see why the editors of uh, FNSF picked this up as one of the first uh, stories in their in their magazine. It's pretty terrific. It's It, it was in the fourth issue. Um, it it's a comment on everything science fiction, every piece of fiction, our own lives. Um, it does everything in a very short space, including there's a sex scene that happens off stage, but the uh, the narrator and can enjoy it knowing that uh, that's him in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I guess is so it's not only about fiction in general, it's also about pornography. It's it's about everything. Think of, all, think of all the good sex you can have while you're not even having it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I might be a little incestuous this uh, story though, considering uh, the the manager off stage is uh, also the author. Um, it, it may well be the the party is given it uh, the, the wealthy fellow uh, whose name his first name his his given name is Baron. Um, which, <laughs> which I, I know you've pointed out, uh, suggests that he's got this authority, uh, but the, the author has more authority than that. Mm -hmm. um, but the word barren actually means male, masculine. Um, and, uh, also means that he's, he's infertile. Ah, <laughs> uh, by sound. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. So uh, all kinds of, uh, interweavings here uh one kind of thing confronting another kind of thing uh it's fascinating to me that the editor calls this joyous it's a mm -hmm. joyous record of a world where life goes on a tangent um because i think that as much fun as you and i are having with it the more you think about this the more you kind of have to wonder wait a minute is my only way to claim freedom in a world that I want to define by my thoughts to kill people who have opposing thoughts? Because that's what the narrator does here. <laughs> well, can, I, can, I would be, say, can you be an anarchist and a pacifist? That's what I've heard Schoenfeld was, both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think seeing a, a fiction story in a magazine that's not well known for fiction, um, seeing it, I see, I don't think this story could have been published in a mainstream magazine when it's published in FNSF. It almost makes, you know, they FNSF is a magazine like all science fiction magazines that can embrace the, the other, the thing that doesn't fit. And, this is a story designed to destroy stories. It's a destructive story. And it it works as a story, but it also see, succeeds in, ex, you know, giving us an exploded view of how stories are, are fictions of 
of of life we think everything is not scripted but so much of it is that um it, it, this kind of story destroys as much as it creates and i think for an anarchist that would be a good thing absolutely so he'd always have more to say <laughs>